Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on WORTFM.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is a public affair. Uh, thank you all for, for joining the show today. Happy Tuesday. We are so fortunate to be joined today by Professor Natalie Lira, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Latina slash Latino Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana Champaign. Her research focuses on Latinx studies and ethnic studies, reproductive justice, disability justice, and the histories of medicine and public health. She is the co-founder of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and author of the of Laboratory of Deficiencies, Sterilization and Confinement in California, 1900 to 1950. Welcome to the show, Professor Lira. How are you doing today, Natalie? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It was so nice to get to chat with you a little bit before we jumped in. And you are you're a new parent. Congratulations! Welcome Hi, to the girl. welcome Thank to the parenting you. club. I think it's so <laughs> fascinating to have this conversation with somebody who's got like uh, a newborn. And I also I have three kids. I have a twelve year old, an eight year old, and a one year old baby. So shout out to to them. Um, yeah, I think what was it like for you to 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 have a, a newborn, to have a little a little kid in your life, given given the work that you do and the writing that you do um, about sterilization and about reproductive rights? I mean, it certainly um, took my research to a much more personal level. You know, um, my primary research is um, on the history of sterilization abuse. And actually, in, I struggled um, with having my first child. I kind of went through infertility and had to go through infertility treatments. And so I got to kind of see a different realm of reproductive politics in that experience and just kind of how um, entrenched, <laughs> um, you know, the act of like birthing a child, it can be in, you know, these experiences and, and layer on, you know, having to go through it in a pandemic. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a lot. It's the hardest, most wonderful thing I've ever done. Um, and it kind of, you know, makes me feel really lucky to be able to research reproduction as my job. So, oh. so yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I'm like, that's phenomenally beautiful. And congratulations again. I'm like, I do, I agree. It's the hardest, most beautiful thing you can, you can possibly do. And also, um, you know, pretty exhausting. I'm like, I really like yeah. the, the Tina Fey quote. That's like, uh, motherhood has made me so happy and so tired. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so welcome to, to <laughs> welcome to the so happy and so tired club. Um, really diving into your work and your research, you you look at, you know, kind of the racialization, um, the ableism that has informed forced sterilization. I, as I learned more and more about you, I had to start wondering, like, were you this little kid who was just like, I just really want to understand more about sterilization? Like, how did you find yourself um, so deeply <laughs> entrenched in this work and this research? No, I was not a little kid that wanted to know more about sterilization. I, you know, I, um, as an undergrad, I was actually really fortunate to be mentored by Latino studies scholars who, like, you know, thought I was smart. And like, I never really thought I was going to be an academic. I, you know, thought I would do something else, but they really fostered my research interest, which have, has always been kind of at the intersection of reproductive politics and um, healthcare. My, my mom is a nurse um, and I was raised by a single mother of four. And so, 
you know, I kind of got to see her struggles with being a single mother of four, a single immigrant mother of four, a Mexican immigrant mother of four who barely spoke English and kind of, so actually my, my research interest when I first went into graduate school, I thought I was going to do a much more contemporary project on, um, you know, anti-immigrant discourse around reproduction. So I wanted to research this stereotype of the anchor baby. Um, like this idea that immigrant women come to the United States to have children and like take advantage of um, social services. And that, you know, took a turn my first year in graduate school when I got had the fortune of working with um, my longtime advisor, Dr. Alex Stern, who had just written about eugenics in California. And she had this access, this um, really amazing trove of archival material that documented sterilization in California. So she had access to all of the sterilization requests that were processed by state institutions in California. And she kind of took me on as a graduate student to help her work through that material. Um, and it's, you know, approximately 20,000 people were sterilized in California between the 1910s and the 1950s. And so it was a lot of documents. Um, and so that's really where I got to learn about that specific history. Of course, as someone who was interested in reproductive politics, I knew about the experiences that women of color, Latinas, Black women, Native women um, had with sterilization abuse in the 60s um, and 70s, right, in, in county hospitals, in Indian Health Services hospitals. But I didn't really know much about sterilization abuse during the eugenics period. And so I kind of got to learn about that firsthand by working with these primary sources. Um, and it was there that I really, um, you know, became sort of um, obsessed with piecing together this history and particularly the experiences of the young Mexican origin women and men that I was seeing in these documents. Um, I didn't, I hadn't learned about these experiences even at the level of graduate school. Um, and so, so that's really where that interest uh, began. And I thought it was going to be just a chapter in my dissertation. And then my dissertation committee was like that's really funny you're gonna write your whole dissertation on this and then and then I expanded that um research into my now my book on um sterilization and confinement in in California one of the things I thought was so interesting about your work is that you really have tied, you know, incarceration and sterilization to one another. And the the conversation about reproductive rights and incarceration, you know, is uh, a, a really relevant conversation to this moment, especially when you think about people who could be incarcerated for the entirety of their pregnancy um, and be forced to give birth while incarcerated for 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 pursuing certain reproductive options, for pursuing abortion um, in a state like Wisconsin, where abortion is a felony. What? Why was it important to you to write about sterilization within the context of confinement? And what do you want people to know about sterilization within the con context of confinement? Sure. I mean, um, so it was frankly just necessary for this particular piece of work. And so, you know, in in during the eugenics era in California, the way that sterilization laid out under the law is that you had to be confined to one of the various California state institutions. And so there were two types of institutions. There was the institution for institutions for the mentally ill, people with diagnoses of mental illness, and institutions for people who were labeled feeble-minded or who exhibited some sort of disability. And so, so under the California law, only folks that had a disability label and who were confined to a state institution could be subject to the law. And so that meant that if you, um, if you were the head of one of these state institutions, you had a lot of power over who would be sterilized, right? And 
that other state authorities would have to collaborate with state institutions to confine people in order to restrict their reproductive um, capacities, right? And so, you know, confinement was a necessary component of this particular um, era of reproductive constraint and reproductive oppression. So it was one of the primary methods that uh, people would experience the loss of reproductive control. Um, so, you know, it was through this legal system, a, a legal and medical system, right? Because you had to also be diagnosed and be subject to a legal process whereby you were committed to a state institution and, the, and then um, you become a ward of the state, right? You lose all of your rights, um, your bodily autonomy, rights to say yes or no to treatment. Um, and so that was a primary method through which that happened. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it was, it had to be part of that story. And I think you're right, like, you know, that it, the, that history kind of gives us interesting parallels um, with the contemporary kind of intersection between criminalization of, um, you know, accessing your reproductive rights, right, or your reproductive autonomy, saying, I want to have control over my you know, body um, and experiencing criminalization, right? And how those two continue to intersect today. You said something earlier that I think is really interesting, and I just want to touch on this, Professor Leary, before we kind of move on through the conversation. Um, you talked about kind of the young people who experienced forced sterilization. Um, I think a lot of times when people think about forced sterilization, particularly forced sterilization um, as it relates to, you know, institutionalization, they think the people that are being sterilized are not necessarily fit to be parents anyway. They're not necessarily people who could take care of themselves, let alone somebody else. Um, I don't think people think of of young people. I don't think people think of, you know, folks who um, maybe had, you know, a, a singular episode episode or, or health crisis that resolved. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the younger folks that your research revealed were forcibly sterilized and what their their stories looked like? Sure, of course. And and I just want to highlight that idea, that idea about um, fitness for parenthood is a very eugenic idea, right? It is an idea that we can some that the state can determine um, who is fit to to be a parent um, and and intervene in that idea of fitness. And so, you know, in my research, um, I really I I detail um, the ways that disability labels were used to mark unfitness. And so, oftentimes, um, you know, in, and I think maybe this folks could use some context on eugenics, right? So eugenics was this idea, eugenicists basically believed that large social problems like poverty, crime, immorality um, were caused by biologically unfit people. And so if we could only prevent these biologically unfit people from reproducing, then we could, you know, better society. And historians have shown that ideas about who is biologically unfit correlate very strongly with classism, racism, ableism, and sexism. And so instead of saying we're going to target low-income people, we're going to target people of color, we're going to target gender non-conforming people, eugenicists really used disability labels. Um, and so they said that things like um, non-normative sexual behaviors, like having sex outside of marriage or having children outside of marriage, um, was symptomatic of being biologically unfit. And so often young women who were having sex outside of marriage or had children outside of marriage or um, were single parents uh, struggling with poverty were labeled um, unfit, uh, were often labeled um, with a disability label and then were confined to these institutions where they would be sterilized. Um, a similar process um, happened with young men, and um, it's wor this worked in a really gendered way. And so often for young men, 
young men who were somehow involved in the juvenile court system. So maybe they, you know, were rolling with the wrong crowd or were involved in thefts or usually Wait, was Professor Lira, can I pause you though? Because when you said young women, you said young women who had children outside of marriage, young women who were sexually active outside of marriage. Yes. Were young men who were sexually active outside of marriage sterilized for that? No, they weren't, right? Um, so we have like this sexual du double standard, but that's also why it was um, gendered, right? And so, you know, we know historically the sexual behaviors of women are often much more policed, right? Unless they are, unless men are, you know, young men were having sex with other men, right? Mm. And then that's a different type of sexual deviance, right? That's being policed. Um, but for young men, at least in the records that I've seen in, in the research that I've done, young men were largely targeted for, um, engagement in like petty crimes. Right. And so that behavior was seen again through a lens of disability that, th that, that was inherent criminality that then they needed to be kind of policed, confined to institutions and sterilized. And these were young men and women teenagers, right? Um, often 15, 16, 17, 18, right? And so the idea was like, we have to prevent them from reproducing this defect early on, right? During their prime reproductive years. And confinement was part of that as well, right? Um, the whole idea around confining folks um, began in at the turn of the 20th century um, with the with the goal of confining folks during the reproductive age so that they couldn't reproduce their defect, right? Mm. I have not, I'm like, that is, I'm like, I talk about incarceration all the time and I'm like, I think you're the first person who's ever, who has ever said that to me or said that on a public affair. So thank you so much, Professor Lira for, you know, I'm like, that's a really eye-opening thing to say is that there is a strategy around incarcerating people at the time when they would establish themselves, have families, have kids, um, yeah. you know, in order to, to prevent those folks from, you know, uh, existing in the future. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is A Public Affair. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. Today, we are continuing our Reproductive Justice Month with Professor Natalie Lira, who studies the history of forced sterilization and is the co-founder of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab. If you would like to join the conversation with a question or comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Our team today is our producer, Rochelle, who is absolutely the best, our engineer, Rory, huge shout out to Rory, and our news director, Sholly Pittman. Um, these are, are the folks that make a public affair and this interview possible. So always grateful for y'all and everything you do to, to make really important conversations um, a part of our community. I want to ask, you know, in your work as the co-founder of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab, how do you kind of connect the dots between the, the history you've researched and this current moment in reproductive justice? Um, you know, our lab, you know, my research individually and our lab um, in general is really um, committed to the reproductive justice framework in general. And for folks that are not familiar with the framework, reproductive justice is um, a framework that um, affirms the right to reproductive and bodily autonomy. And this is through kind of three pillars, right? The right to have children, the right to not have children, and the right to parent your children in safe and sustainable environments. And so although our research at the Sterilization um, and Social Justice Lab has focused on like one part of that pillar, right? The right to have children, because we are you know, committed to documenting and exposing the history of sterilization abuse, um, we see, um, and I certainly see kind of this um, denial of the, the right to not have children as part of a, a reproductive oppression writ large, right? And so, you know, with 
the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, the Supreme Court, you know, not only kind of decimated what was a long held institutional right, but it also um, in many ways worked to reenact a lot of the logics and harms of the eugenics era by depriving people the right to make fundamental reproductive decisions, right? Because then they're put at the mercy of state legislators. And that's really how it worked under the eugenics era as well. You know, eugenics sterilization programs um, were uh, functioned state by state. And eugenic sterilization was affirmed by the Supreme Court in the 1920s. Um, under the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, which legitimized a state's right to um, prevent reproduction in the name of public health. Um, and so, you know, not all states had eugenic sterilization laws. Um, about 32 U.S. states enact these law, enacted these laws. Um, and they functioned differently. Um, some states used the law sparingly, others were more zealous, like in California. Um, and so, you know, we're gonna see a similar process here, right? Where, and we're, we're seeing that, that already, right? Where some states are enacting um, more stringent anti-abortion laws and other states are not. And so it means that folks are kind of subject to the folks' reproductive autonomy is subject to the, the place where they live. Um, and so that's one very clear parallel. Uh, you know, another parallel is that, um, you know, these, these um, decisions will disproportionately harm marginalized and dispossessed people. And that's what happened in, under eugenic sterilization, right? Low-income folks, disabled people, racialized folks, gender non-conforming people. These are the people that were targeted for sterilization. And, you know, as some of the Supreme Court justices wrote in the Dobbs decision, you know, under this new um, landscape of anti-abortion laws, marginalized folks will also suffer, right? More resourced people will be able to travel to states to receive reproductive care, to receive abortions, and others who are not resourced won't be able to do that. Um, imprisoned folks won't be able to access reproductive care, right? Undocumented folks won't be able to access reproductive care. And so those are some of the parallels that, that you know, are very clearly outlined um, that I can very clearly see, you know, through this history. Professor Leary, Leary, I think it's really interesting to talk about the the 32 states who had these laws and to really think about, you know, the role of sterilization in kind of our current conversation. I've heard so many people, you know, really kind of championing vasectomy um, as, as a way to prevent unwanted pregnancy and really promoting, you know, <clears throat> sterilization as birth control. How do you respond to, to that dialogue um, in, as part of the, the kind of current conversation we're having about reproductive rights um, in a post-Roe world? Well, I think it's really disturbing. Um, you know, I, I think, um, again, going back to the reproductive justice framework, you know, part, a part of it, a part of that pillar of the right to not have children is the right to not have children through the method of your choice. And choice is a very complicated part of that because obviously we make choices within our contexts. Um, and it's really unfortunate that folks will have to make very permanent choices within this context of restriction. Right. I've heard folks say, you know, men should have <laughs> vasectomies and that's problematic. I understand the outrage, right, that a lot of this responsibility falls on people who can give birth, people with uteruses. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that we should um, impose oppression on folks with penises. Um, 
but I've also heard, um, you know, efforts around loosening restrictions and waiting periods for, um, uh, for sterilizations, um, for tubal ligations, um, which again, I understand within the context of, um, uh, a lack of access to abortion might mean that folks who really do want to have um, a sterilization, a tubal ligation can access that care quickly. It also um, could possibly open the door for abuse, right? That folks might be coerced more easily into um, sterilizations. And that's exactly what happened in the 60s in, in you know, um, public uh hospitals and in um oh i'm so glad you brought this up i was hoping we'd get to kind of have this conversation around you know how particularly young women of color were coerced or and and i think we still see this in in modern medicine um you know we're we're told you know hours after giving birth, like, hey, the easiest and cheapest way for us to prevent you from, and I'm sorry, but I'm like, anybody who's given birth, like, the hour afterwards, if somebody said, like, what about never doing that again? I feel like you'd be like, yeah, like, yes, yes. Um, So to take people in the the vulnerable state of of giving birth and pregnancy um, and exploit that for for the purposes of of promoting sterilization and birth control um, is is something that we've seen and that we've seen targeted to, to very specific populations. Can you talk a little bit about how it has been determined um, like which groups of, of folks need to be targeted and to what extent to target black women, Latinx women, um, and, and indigenous folks. Sure. I mean, and in many ways, this goes back to kind of the eugenic logic that, um, large social issues are caused by individuals, uh, or individual uh, certain populations, right? And so the idea is that, you know, poor folks, we can help low-income people if we help them not have children that they can't afford, right? And so instead of looking at um, a systemic issue like the economy or like the lack of well-paying jobs or a lack of social supports, we instead look at um, individuals and try to intervene in, you know, in biological ways, you know, and so, and so the, you know, the idea that, um, you know, low income Latinas, low income black women, um, disabled folks are unfit to parent because they don't have the resources um, becomes an individual problem and a problem of morality and responsibility and individual um, um, uh, defect, right? And so that's how um, folks see it. And it can be very well-meaning folks. And that's why this happens in healthcare settings, right? Where, where um, healthcare professionals uh, maybe well-meaning and, you know, may think I'm doing the best for this person and I know what's the best for this person in the long run. Um, and, I think, and again, that's, that's I think what you just said, though, is an overall theme of yes. the the fight in reproductive justice. Right. Which is does the does the individual have the right to say, I know what's best for me or does some external expert um, get to say, hey, I know you think you want an abortion, but you actually don't. I know you think you want to, you know, want to have a natural birth, but you actually need Pitocin. I know, like, isn't isn't part of the overall theme of reproductive care undermining women particularly? Isn't it all about kind of saying, oh, well, I know you think that this is your body, but actually uh, it's not. Um, and, and and how does the history of, of saying some people's bodies belong to them and some people's bodies do not belong to them play into this conversation? Well, I mean, I think that's exactly uh, it, right? It's it's about, and and I think this is where you know, some of the history on um, disability and eugenics is really important because it's about um, who is capable 
who is intelligent enough to make these decisions, who is resourced enough to make these decisions. And, um, you know, historically um, in the United States, there you know, those, um, the ideas around who is deserving of and who is capable of making reproductive decisions is shaped by racism and classism and ableism and sexism, right? Um, and we've seen that over and over again. We've seen it since slavery, right? Where enslaved Black women were, you know, objectified and forced to reproduce, right? Um, and then once their reproduction was not profitable, then then they fall into the category of irresponsible. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, just- and I think when you think about that history of forced reproduction, you know, when we talk about slavery, we often, you know, just the term slavery um, makes us kind of distance what slavery was from human trafficking. Right. Like the, the sexual exploitation of black women and girls um, as a relevant part of the history of black people in the United States um, is something that that often gets, you know, forgotten or or is misshaped. Right. Like we talk oh. about a cotton plantation. We talk about um, a, a tobacco plantation. We don't talk about a breeding plantation, right? right. We, we don't like to talk about the, the long history of rape and sexual assault that has informed the reproductive reality of black and brown women throughout the United States. We have a yeah. caller on the line, Peter, who has a question about your book, Natalie. Welcome to A Public Affair, Peter. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining us on 89.9 FM Madison. Hey, it's it's uh, great to have the UW professors here in town that can talk about these important subjects. Well, I, I just want to have... remind you really quick that Natalie Lira is an assistant professor in the Department of Latina and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Oh. Her research focuses on Latinx studies, ethnic studies, reproductive justice, disability studies, and the histories of medicine and public health. She is the co-founder of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and the author of The Laboratory of Deficiencies, Sterilization and Confinement, California, 1900 to 1950. Well, then I'd like to say it's nice to have uh, such a, a visiting professor here. Uh, yes, it's, good. it's nice to have good neighbors. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask her opinion about a book that I brought from the library and read. And it was about how uh, eugenics led into the Holocaust, Oof. Uh, called "The War Against the Weak." Have you ever heard of that book? And uh, if you if you've read it, what do you what did you think about it? The War Against the Weak. Thank you so much for that question, Peter. Doctor, doctor, or I'm sorry, Professor Lira. What what do you what do you think about the question? And or is that just like a really good book recommendation for all of us? <laughs> Thank you for that question, Peter. I, I am familiar with the book. I have not read it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think folks definitely uh, make that parallel at, uh, with the Holocaust. And, and it's an important one. Um, indeed, you know, California's um, sterilization law was um, somewhat of a blueprint for um, the sterilization program practiced under um, in Nazi Germany. Um, I, I, I want to also caution that sometimes um, that parallel serves to make this particular history somewhat of an aberration. Um, and so, you know, eugenics was very uh, popular in the United States as it was in other countries. Um, and, and so, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I've heard good things about the book. I haven't read it myself. Um, so... So yeah, I, I I can't recommend it, but I think it I think it's it's worth a read. Well, Peter, I love a good book recommendation. Our our producer Michelle knows if there's anything I'm down for, it's a it's a good book club moment. So I will I'll check out the War Against the Week um, and let you let you know what I think next week because we're still going to be talking about reproductive justice throughout the entire month of August. Thank you so much for calling. If you have a question, you want to join this conversation, um, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Please feel free to call us with your questions, with your book recommendations, with your comments about sterilization. We want to hear from you. Um, and we have the wonderful Professor Natalie Leary, uh, Lyra, 
on with us today to, to talk all about the work that she does um, as the co-founder of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and the author of The Laboratory of Deficiencies, Sterilization and Confinement in California, 1900 to 1950. When you're when you're looking back at kind of the popularity of eugenics, and I really appreciate you saying like this was a really um you know, like even the idea of fitness as a parent, you saying like that's derived from from the language of eugenics. I'm like, well, we're all kind of familiar of the idea that with of the idea that some people are fit to be parents and some people are not. Um, you know, when did eugenics fall out of popularity? What did it? What was the what was the end of of the normalization of these practices in American institutions? Or are we still kind of seeing the widespread phenomena that is forced sterilization, um, but we're not we're not aware of it, or we don't link it to kind of our history um, in in maybe ways that we should. Um, you know, eugenics was a much broader effort um, than just sterilization. Sterilization was really just one kind of extreme, um, and so. Again, eugenics was kind of, it was um, this 20th, turn of the 20th century uh, movement that applied theories of heredity to socialism. And so in addition to um, sterilization, eugenicists advocated for things like uh, marriage restriction. They were very successful in advocating for immigration restriction. And so they were adamant that certain um, immigrant groups should not be allowed to enter into the United States because they diluted the quality, the racial quality of the United States and um, were successful in that in that quest, right? So, the so that Johnson sounds really Act. that sounds really similar to oh, like yeah. some of the rhetoric right. from from Donald Trump, right? That these people right. are criminals, that they're rapists, that we don't want Mexicans yes. in the United States, um, that we don't want people from poor countries in Africa, um, that we yeah, really exactly. you know want you know certain certain kinds of European folks to be the people who primarily immigrate here. Um, we're still hearing that kind of rhetoric. And you're talking about, you know, the way that that played out in in the eugenics movement. So some of the things that you just named, I'm like, well, it seems like that's still happening. Um, right. Is forced sterilization the part of eugenics that went out of style? I mean, we uh, we continue to see. I mean, sir, so I'll say this, right? Um the Buck v. Bell case, uh, the Supreme Court case that legitimized sterilization, uh, mandated sterilization by states, was never overturned. Um, certainly, um, we don't have the same types of eugenic sterilization programs, but sterilization abuse continues to happen. Mm. Um, and so, and it happens in these continues to happen in conditions of confinement, including in prisons. So in the early um, 2000s, um, uh, hundreds of uh, imprisoned women in California were sterilized illegally, uh, off, uh, many of them without their um, direct consent. I mean, not too long ago, right, in 2020, September 2020, we learned that um, uh, immigrant women in the ICE detention center in Georgia experienced unwanted hysterectomies, right? Thank um, you and for so naming we, that. We continue to see um, sterilization abuse under very similar logics. And so I'll say again, so, so eugenics really didn't necessarily invent the type of racist, classist, and ableist logics that um, place people in vulnerable positions um, and justify reproductive oppression, but it, it legitimized it in a lot of ways. And it legitimized those ideas through science, through things like statistics, through biology. And so, you know, it fell out of favor um, in kind of the 50s, somewhat because of its association with Nazi Germany, but really a lot of the ideas continue to circulate, particularly when we see, again, ideas that um, repeat the notion that we can address 
social issues like poverty and immorality and crime if we only like help certain people not have children, right? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing because I think so often for me, I think of the folks who believe in small government, right? Like the folks who are like, I don't want the government in my school and I don't want the government, you know, in my yard. And I, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, want to kind of be like, yo, the government should only be able to reach so far, um, seem to be the same people who think the government should reach right into your uterus, right? Like the seem, yeah. seem to often be the same folks who are advocating, hey, you don't get to decide when it's right for you to have a kid or start a family or how big you want your family to be or the conditions in which your your family lives in. Um, the government should have a major role um, in deciding for you whether or not uh, you you are ready to have a kid or how many kids you have or when you are are, are sterilized and those those sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit about the politics of of steril, sterilization? Who are the political advocates and and you know in a place like California I think many of us think of California as a really progressive um, place that celebrates diversity that has a thriving economy that you know uh, welcome welcomes everybody so what 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 was going on between 1900 and 1950 um, politically that 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 this was such a widespread movement to sterilize you know, many, many people um, and confine many, many people in the in the state of California? I mean, I might be surprised to learn that it was progressive Californians that were often behind a lot of eugenic um, policies and practices, including um, eugenic sterilization. And part of it was this belief in um, government intervention in making society better. And so I think it's a really cautionary tale for contemporary progressives and thinking about which types of interventions we support, right? Um, and so the argument for um, confining people in institutions and sterilizing them was that this was an intervention into poverty and that this was an intervention into um, you know, social issues. Um, in, and that giving folks social supports in the in the vein of, for example, um, better jobs, um, you know, um, income support, things like that, were useless because these people were just going to continue to breed immorality and crime. Right? That we had to intervene in a different way. And so, you know, I think it's it's important to highlight that folks were thinking that they were helping. And so I think whenever we think that we're gonna try to help folks that we view as other, that we view as perhaps un incapable of making decisions on their own, that we really look at the types of interventions that we're making and whether those interventions are helping people um, live, <laughs> um, you know, uh, with dignity and um, support or whether we are, you know, trying to diminish their control over their own lives in order to make things more convenient for others, right? Mm. Um, so I think it's a cautionary tale um, because a lot of people who were in support of these uh, policies viewed themselves as humanitarians, right? And viewed themselves as good people who were trying to like get rid of poverty and get rid of crime, right? This is the thing that I talk about with my students on a regular basis because I work with a lot of young activists um, mm. and oftentimes, you know, folks have an idea and they think like, I have an idea and I want to help and that is enough, right? And I think we talk a lot of a lot about like, People don't get to just do whatever they want and call it helping, right? Like somebody doesn't just get to do whatever they want to you and say that they're helping you and supporting you. If somebody wants to help you, um, they have to ask you what you need, right? Like you have right. to be in, involved in that. That's a conversation. Like, um, and, and I think we have this very supremacist relationship with what it means to support or assist, assist people um, because we really look down.
down on the idea of needing support or assistance. And we have this kind of mythology of the self-made man. If you, and if you're not that, um, then there's something there's something wrong with you. So I think, you know, what you what you just spoke to is so important and is such a, a, a reality check um, because I can totally understand how how progressives um, were were the perpetrators, how, you know, a progressive sense of of supremacy would lead you to think not only are we helping these people, but we're also sparing these, you know, unborn children, um, mm-hmm. these unfit, abusive, impoverished homes. And I think yes. so much of this conversation about reproductive justice is about deciding what is right for, for kids, right? What kind of parents are right for kids? Um, you know, should 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 people you know, have kids that they don't want because that's the right thing for the kid, right? Like, is to to be born into a, a family where you're not wanted. Should people not have kids that they desperately want because the right thing for the kid um, is to not grow up in a certain kind of household. You, as as a parent, I think like this is a really complex thing to grapple with, which is what is the standard that we as a society should embrace for children? Um, what is it that we we want for our young people? And I I heard you say earlier, you know, the idea that the government government, um, you know, is going to decide who is fit or unfit to be a parent. I'm like, well, I think that I think about that one way when you're talking about eugenics, but when you talk about something like CPS, like Child Protective Services, mm-hmm. and what it looks like to remove a kid from an unsafe environment, um, th- we do have standards of how of how kids should be treated. Um, you know, and so I think how how do we have that that conversation as a community about what we want for one another's kids um, while respecting the autonomy of, of people as individuals? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is, uh, as you just described it, it, it should be a conversation, right? It should be a conversation that is fostered within communities and within families um, and that is um, supported by um, uh, uh, officials that claim to have the best interests of their communities in mind right and and I think like the the point about CPS is really important because you know if I think about like the work of um, Dorothy Roberts you know one of the most well-respected reproductive justice scholars who shows how uh, you know even though we have these um, systems that are supposed to protect children from harm they actually wind up doing more harm Mm. to children and to families because what they wind up policing is not necessarily um, abuse and violence but poverty Mm. Right. That they wind up releasing, you know, um, symptoms of poverty and then separating families who are struggling with poverty. So, again, it's like a missed um, opportunity and putting a lot of resources into um, policing um, and intervening um, and not in supporting people in making the families that they want and supporting the families that they want and in kind of creating, you know, situations where people can live in right um yeah professor natalie lear i feel like i could talk to you all day i have so many more questions for you but i really want to get to this question about you know what when when we're talking about forced sterilization and specifically looking at the book that you wrote the laboratory of deficiency sterilization and confinement in california 1900 to 1950 i actually think a lot of people think of that era that half a, a century with a very deep sense of nostalgia with a sense mm-hmm. of like america was this wholesome place um it was the time that we you know beat the nazis in world war 2 it's the time we we stood up for for people's rights women integrated the workforce um you know you look at that time period in history and i think people think of america as as a place that was progressive and intentional um and and wholesome in a way that we're not anymore in fact i think a lot of people go how do we get back to those to the roots of of what built the middle class right 
Um, and in a lot of ways, I think of that as as kind of a real mythology about American history um, that that people kind of rely on to absolve us of all the kind of shame we have about things like slavery and the genocide of indigenous people and, um, oh. you know, the reality of, of what it means to be American. Um Looking at that that time period, though, politically, there was the war against poverty. There was these more um, kind of progressive movements in terms of, you know, embracing folks with disabilities and, and creating those spaces. How how does how does your your look at that time period fit into the greater context of, of what was going into America and what can it tell us about right now? Um, That's a big question. So I think that was the experience for some folks, right? Like that was, and, and, and part of what I try to do in my book is also show how, uh, while we have some folks that were experiencing confinement and sterilization, we have some folks really benefiting from that process, in particular care workers. So women, um, middle-class women who are coming into professions for the first time to be nurses and social workers and educators, right? So the creation of a professional class that enables people to become middle-class and to become um, active in politics where, when they hadn't be before. And so I think part of the lesson is to see, you know, how some people's success and profit is made on the suffering of others and to Oof. address that um, and to try and, and, and figure out that that um, that that relation, that oppressive relationship. I, I'm curious. I'm like, this is my last question. We've got about 30 seconds left. What is next for you in this work? You know, when we when we call you and we bring you back to the show, what are you going to be working on? You've written the book. You've founded the sterilization, the sterilization and social justice lab. Uh, Professor Natalie Lira, what what is next for you in terms of this work? Um, I'm really ready to start looking at something much more um, uplifting. I really want to look at the ways that people turned experiences of reproductive oppression into um, struggles for reproductive justice. And so uh, I really want to track, you know, how experiences of um, denial of consent, experiences of reproductive abuse really um, shaped movements for reproductive justice and, and new visions for um, what bodily autonomy and reproductive justice and autonomy means. Oh, I'm so grateful to have gotten to talk to you, Dr. or I'm sorry, Professor Natalie Lira. You are so right on time. I can't wait to see what you do next. I can't wait to have you back on WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and we will be back next week on Tuesday. So make sure you tune in. Six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it.